glimpse of the diversity. So there's Andy from Argentina, um, Esayas from Ethiopia, this is where I'm going to struggle, uh, Bargas from Indonesia, Kenol from Haiti, Julie from Kenya, um, Pin from Singapore, uh, Chris from Germany, Hung from Vietnam, uh, Tahir from Bangladesh, uh, Amir from Jordan, uh, uh, Victor from Vietnam, Julie from the Philippines, um, uh, Yanusa from northern Nigeria, Sazi from the Netherlands, and Daniel from India. Um, all of them in different kind of areas of ministry. So some of them in church ministry, some senior pastors, some sort of missions pastors or youth pastors, some, uh, so Daniel from in- India, for example, um, runs a Christian hospital out there, and just to get together and learn together about what God is doing and the stuff that's sort of working or not working, or, or just getting a different perspective and take on church and what the Lord is doing. So um, there's a bit on Elmbrook. There we go. There's there's people again, if that helps. Um, so you can see it's quite a diverse. They deliberately um, get a diversity of people who turn up. Uh, I think about 50 people apply. Um, through recommendations and then they wheedle it down to sort of 15 to 18 and then depending on how visas work then there's a certain number who come. Um, so, that, so there's my first two points. So, as I say, this is kind of a splicing together of two things. So one is this study in April, the other is time in America, the two of which were linked because the American church were keen to hear some of my thinking and thoughts on um, and reading on, on multicultural church. Um, so Let's get on to number one, if you've got your handouts. There's a couple in the middle if people want to... Um, so t- two things to say here. Um, one is simply the, the globalisation that we're encountering. So if you look at t- particularly towns and cities ten years ago and look at them now, you'll see it's such a huge sort of diversification as people move and things become much more fluid. So I've got a quote for you from Bruce Milne. Um, uh, Bruce Milne says, Everywhere in today's world, diversity meets us. From the footpaths of our cities to the chat rooms of the internet, people are connecting today as never before across the great traditional divides of gender, race, ethnicity and generation. As the planet shrinks through the multiple forces of immigration, travel, electronic communication and more fluid employment patterns, we find ourselves forced into contact to agree never before experienced on planet Earth. Amid the countless human connections that fill our days, difference and diversity are increasingly prominent. Um, and so it's very interesting that churches all over the place are asking these kinds of questions. If diversity is increasingly prevalent, if we, we see more and more people who are not like us on the streets around us, then how do we do church in such a way as to reach the people around us? Um, so there's one question there, and that's particularly in Oxford. You'll know Oxford is, um, I think, particularly diverse because there's a partly because of study, partly because there's a kind of kudos of Oxford, partly because I think people come and actually work for the colleges as well, from people I've spoken to, then often there's employment available. Um, another interesting thing, just hand these round, is I was invited to something on Friday, just gone, uh, quite by chance, which is a, a connection, a gathering of Christian pastors around Oxford who are thinking about similar things. Um, so what you've got, particularly on the second page, is... Um, a cross-section of churches, the people who got back to um, Marcus Roberts from the Rivers of Life Church, if you ever come across them. Um, and what you see is just the diversity of church families 
within Oxford. I think these are all within the Ring Road. Um, one person, I can't remember who it was now, but when we first came and started thinking about church planting and CCC and where to potentially plant, and we put lots of churches on a map, and I think we counted um, 90 Protestant churches within the Ring Road, and were at least just outside the Ring Road within Oxford. So there's a huge number, particularly of these sort of mono, or particularly mono-ethnic churches within the Oxford region. So different. And what Marcus is asking is, and it's sadly, all the faces basically were in the room were white, and not necessarily English as first language, but everyone there on Friday. But asking, how do we engage with black majority churches, for example? Is, is it a good thing that there are black majority churches? Does that... But the fact that we don't particularly mix, is that a bad thing for us as Christians? Do we have blind spots in terms of how we do church and what it means to be Christians and that kind of thing? So it's a question that different churches around Oxford are asking. We'll come back to that in a bit. Um, the other thing I want to argue, I think, is that um, churches ought to be diverse. And I think you can, or perhaps as diverse as the area around them, and you can make pretty good cases for that. Um, Ephesians is a particularly helpful one. So, the polypoikilos word um, means uh, manifold wisdom. And if you remember in uh, Ephesians chapter 3, Paul talks about the church as being God's manifold wisdom. And that manifold wisdom word means multicultural, multicoloured kaleidoscopic, basically, is the word. So, I think it's in the Old Testament, it's used of Jacob's coat. The colour coat. So it's that kind of multi. Why does Paul use in in a in a in a letter all about diversity and unity? Why does Paul use that word to describe the local church? What does it mean that God's wisdom is manifold, is multicoloured, is kaleidoscopic? And I think there's a pretty strong argument for the fact that he is uniting a broken, diverse humanity in local churches to display the glory of his glory and the glory of Christ on the cross as he's bringing people back together again. Um, we'll come on to Romans in a bit as well, but I think Ephesians gives you the sort of big picture idea of what's going on in local church. I think Romans actually, and there's not very much out there on Romans on this, um, but Romans gives you the, the how to do it. How do you bring, in Romans examples, Jew and Gentile, together in such a way as to deal with different cultures and that kind of stuff. Um, if anybody can point me to some good stuff on Romans and diverse church, that would be great. But I don't think there's much out there at this point. Um, there may be a niche in the market. Um, so, so I want to say, yes, diverse church because of the way the world is now particularly, but also, yes, diverse church because of how God has um, designed local church to be. Um, of course, the problem is uh, we quite like hanging around people who are quite like us, mm-hmm. and it's much easier to be in church where people aren't quite so difficult or mm. do things in a different way culturally or mm. um, don't like the same sorts of things that we like. And so, it's much easier to not have blind spots challenged by clustering together um, in mono-ethnic, monocultural, whatever, mono-educational even mm. local churches. Um, and yeah, I always think of Pam Weber, um, who, who sadly died last year. But do you remember Pam? Some of those of you who knew Pam, yeah. she was an old lady in her seventies, uh, just, 
Um, he was born in Oxford, or born in um, out near Islip. Uh, local. She was the kind of person who who had sort of prostitutes sleeping on her lounge floor because they had nowhere to live, or um, or two homeless men stayed in her house from on her lounge from November through to February because of the floods a couple of years ago, and they had nowhere else to live. And and her sort of extraordinary love for people not like her and her challenge of us as home group I found <laughs> at times brilliant and at times just you realise that my, my love is just tiny my love for people who aren't like me are tiny and Pam is just an example of that so um, Pam was brilliant for us as a home group um, so yes multicultural church because of the way the world is is changing and moving, yes, because of Ephesians and I think the New Testament as well. Um, let me talk to you briefly about my time at Elmbrook and what was going on. Um, I, I've talked to you slightly already, um, but just the way this sort of fed in, I think there were two things, particularly from the two and a half weeks or so whilst there, that fed into this. Um, and that was the International Centre itself, so that was the 17 or 18 people from all around the world in the same room processing different things together. Um, and just seeing common themes, common ideas, um, common strands in God at work in people's lives, um, in diversity. T- two interesting things that um, I-, I definitely took away, and I'm still processing from engaging with these people. Uh, one is the importance of suffering, in the way that God uses suffering to grow his people in maturity, um, which is profoundly challenging and the kind of thing that we shy from but extraordinary to hear of God's faithfulness in the midst of suffering so I think of Canal, um, if you're here for the pictures who, who lost his wife um, in the earthquake in Haiti uh, he was lecturing at the front of a lecture hall and he I, I guess miraculously heard something and he thought it was a JCB so he went out because he thought he had a JCB so he went out to look what was going on and, and came back in basically to find that the earthquake had happened and the ceiling had collapsed and there were 30, 40, 50 people, including his wife, who, who died. But he he sees the Lord's faithfulness um, through that suffering in growing him and maturing him um, and now giving him a ministry to build up and train and equip leaders in Haiti because you've lost a generation of people who would be the next generation of leaders and so he's pouring his life into them. Um, or I think I've mentioned um, a guy from Vietnam um, who who had this he's a faithful church leader and in times gone past there it was much more difficult in Vietnam you would have Bibles confiscated um, such that they would write out passages and share them around people and memorise them um, such that you wouldn't lose the word of God basically and they would have them in their hearts so, and yeah, what was happening is I share out passages of scripture for you guys to memorise and you're there busy memorising it over time and then people would steal the scripture um, steal the paper and then make people pay to give it back to them so just extraordinary um, but seeing the Lord's faithfulness through through suffering is just incredible so there's one thing to Keep in mind um, when life is hard or when we think about suffering. The other thing I think was really interesting and I suspect ought to impact us more is the importance of ministry to youths and just the way the Lord particularly reached people in their teens and student years. 
Um, I think we went around the room, and pretty much everybody in the room had been um, had uh, had blind eyes opened or significantly grown and affected through their teenage years. So, uh, just the way the Lord uses, um, particularly I guess, periods and seasons of people's lives, and um, perhaps when they're thinking about the world, thinking about life. Um, so there was the international centre itself as we process things, um, processing how stuff works in America, um, and 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 the the, the church were genuinely humble and wanting to listen and learn and and, and think about their, um, the way they do stuff and whether these kinds of things would work in in, um, in in different places so thinking about discipleship to men for example they've got a huge ministry discipling men and thinking where you've got incredible growth in the church in sub-Saharan Africa or Ethiopia places like that um, will these resources that works in America will they work in Ethiopia for example so they generally want to learn um, so there was the International Centre itself and how we learnt from each other. The, the other was, um, they have this, off the back of the International Centre, they have something called Harvest Fest. And they love their fests in, in um, Northern America. Um, and Harvest Fest was, uh, again, a, a focus on world mission and different groups that they supported would come in and um, chat to people and, and, and seek to focus people outwards. Um, but the big theme for this that Harvest Fest of last October was racial reconciliation. So you will know, if you know anything about America, um, the, the history and the ongoing issues in, in the US now, um, where they've come from, the sort of racial segregation on Sunday mornings, and Martin Luther King said it was the, most, um, the, the time of most segregation through the week was on a Sunday morning, and why do these things happen in churches? And so these guys had um, different pastors from locally from different churches, but also um, uh, experts from, from different places coming in and teaching and trying to think through how you perhaps ought to do church in a way that <coughs> shows the gospel unification that happens. So there was an extraordinary um, talk from a um, uh, female black professor um, who, who's thinking about racial reconciliation from um, John Ford and the Samaritan woman, um, and just her perspective and the, I guess her yeah, growing up as a woman, um, growing up as a as a black woman at that, um, and and just her, her her take on it and her teaching I thought it was extremely powerful, um, and hugely thought provoking. Um, so that was Elmbrook. Again, you can you can talk to, you can ask me questions in a bit. Let me work my way through, and then you can chuck stuff at me or we can talk about stuff or whatever um, whatever might be useful um, so on to three so, so if we're agreed and I'm not assuming we are but if we're agreed that perhaps we should think about how we reach the diversity of the area in which we live then what are the problems with that why do we have mono ethnic, mono educational um, monocultural churches in the first place um, and then how might we think about diversity and diversifying? Um, so I've got the problem of monocultural churches. Um, and I think there are different reasons for them. Some are actively chosen, some sort of passively slipped into. The actively chosen ones, I think... No, I've, I've changed the handout. So again, language I'm happy with. Um, if you don't speak English, then... 
I think that's a, a good reason to not, at this point, come to an English-speaking church, basically. So I think language is the one exception, in my mind. Um, again, it, it's, there's still potential arguments for why you might put on translation, all that kind of stuff. But if we're wanting to model to a diverse world the <coughs> unifying power of Christ in bringing broken people together, then perhaps we should think about that. So language is a slightly different thing, I think. Um, HUP is the homogeneous unit principle. Um, here's the science bit, briefly. Uh, so there is a um, missionary practitioner called Donald McGavran working in India who, um, who basically worked out that to, to reach different groups within India, um, you couldn't just do a scattergun approach and invite everyone to come into church because of all the different caste groups. And so what he worked out was if you reach a particular caste first, then form a church there, and then they hear the gospel and they apply the gospel and they, they work, work out the implications of the gospel, and then you might start doing a passage amongst another caste group um, and, and bring them in sort of later. So you almost do targeted evangelism for, for particular types of people, but then in a secondary sense you bring people together. Okay, so there are two, there are two, two, two sections. There's the initial... Let's go reach these people. But then the secondary thing is you bring people together afterwards once they're Christians. Um, now the danger, or the problem with that is, um, and it's, but I think it's a particularly an American phenomenon, people take the initial step, let's target hipster graphic designers or baristas or whoever they might be, and they're generally cool 20-something bearded gentlemen with big glasses and kind of lumberjack shirts. Let's target them. <laughs> but then there isn't a secondary stage. There's often not the secondary thing. So you just end up with a church of 20-somethings um, and you haven't got the diversity that perhaps we ought to have. Um, and, and you can look at it from sociological perspective. So you can say churches grow quickest when you reach one type of person. Doesn't God want to reach lots of people? Yeah? So let's reach one type of person because that's how you grow churches quickest. And we'll have one church there that reaches these people. And we'll have one church there that reaches these people. And we'll have one church there that reaches these people. And they'll all grow quicker because they haven't got to deal with people who aren't like them. And when we get to heaven, then we can all be friends together in a sort of big church with Jesus. Um, And that's a genuine argument. And there is something in that, I think, because you want to say, yes, the Lord is glorified as... um, there are more and more parties in heaven because people are becoming Christians. Do we want to help people to become Christians? Yes, we do. So let's create an environment where they can be feel comfortable and explore matters of faith. And sure, but then you've, you might argue, um, you've got that's one end of the spectrum where you you want to be making things as easy as possible for people to hear of Christ. And so, but then you've got the other end that says, but God is glorified through diverse communities because the cross is for all kinds of people and. Um, Paul doesn't tell the Ephesian Christians, hey you guys, the way to do it is to go and start a Gentile church over there because you will help you reach Gentile people and you guys can go reach Jewish people and, and you will grow quicker and then when you get to heaven you can just be friends with them. And actually what he says is no, stay united. Um, show that diversity together. In anyway. So there's one thing, that's the homogeneous unit principle. It's, it's, I, I think there's lots to say for it and lots of good things about HUP. And the danger is when we just stop at the first half and simply try and make churches that reach one type of person. Um, the other thing, and this is interesting, I think, is 
if if I were to go and live in anywhere that I didn't feel at home, I'm sure there'd be something in me that would want to go and hang with people like me. So to go and find an expat community where we can eat Twixes together and sort of talk about days back at home, that kind of thing. Where, where, you, where, where you, you, you can feel like you're at home because everything else feels alien. And through the week you're feeling, you're struggling with the language, you're struggling with food, you're struggling with community, you're struggling with just the whole culture and way of doing things. And so I think there is a genuine argument where you can think, well, maybe church is a great place for me to to worship in my language, um, with people who are like me, who know the songs that I sing, and it's just a bit easier to gather together as Brits or English-speaking people um, in, a, in a different community and worship God in that way. So I think there is a sense in which perhaps there's a sense of home as you're in, a, in an alien culture um, and thinking through what does that mean? Is that legitimate? What does that mean if, if I'm... What does that mean to the local churches in that area if all the white guys hang together and all the, say I'm in Africa somewhere, all the, I don't know, sub-Saharan Africans are in one church and we've got our little church here by ourselves. What does that mean for them? What does that do to that church? What does that do to people watching in at the church that I'm a part of? Um, so this is, is an interesting kind of cultural idea. Are there ways of doing things slightly differently where you can still have that sense of home and community um, as you're perhaps feeling homesick or perhaps missing speaking in your language and yet still being part of a wider church family um, and showing that, almost being sort of prophetically revealing that wisdom of God in, in his polypoikilos, um, in his manifold wisdom, his kaleidoscopic wisdom of forming a local church together. Um, so there's an active thing. I think one is language. There are, there are many more. Two is the homogeneous unit thing. It's deliberate. It's particularly in church planting. That's a particular thing. I think, interestingly, that if you read the stuff, I think the pendulum's swinging the other way um, now that there are key... Um, there are kind of big-name church planters who are get, deliberately getting involved in sort of diverse church stuff, thinking proactively, how do we plant churches that are are representative of the area that you're living in rather than just being kind of hipsters. Um, and then there's the passive thing, and that's the sort of so the actively chosen, then there's the passively chosen. And it might just be, let's say you do move to another community, another, another world, and you go and try different churches. Um, how, how will you feel in those churches? You know, maybe the sermons will be three hours long. Or maybe they will sing for years to come. <laughs> maybe they will only sing psalms. Maybe it just won't feel like home for you as you go to, to different churches and you try out different churches. How do you choose, choose them? Because it may be that you will choose one that feels culturally most like what you're used to. And so you sort of passively slide into a church where you feel comfortable. Well, so imagine people coming to visit us at Magdalen Road, and they think, "Well, what are they doing? The sermon's only thirty-five minutes. You know, that's far too long or far too short." Um, and so they will go and find a church that perhaps they're used to, or or the singing. All these Brits with their hands in their pockets. Um, well, why aren't they joyful in the way that they sing and the way they worship God? And do you know what I mean? Or <coughs> or, 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 or the, these, this church only meets for. 
an hour and a half, and people grumble once it gets to 12 o'clock. I mean, <laughs> for example. <laughs> and so you can, you can imagine, as you, hit, as you go to a different community, a different town, you will kind of passively, potentially, slide into a church that you feel comfortable in. And so it is with people coming to visit us. Um, then perhaps needs to be a decision if they want to try something new or do something different. Um, so there are some problems with monocultural churches. How does the Bible do it? Um, I think in different ways, and I'm just going to pick out two things uh, on this. Um, the first thing is Antioch, and I, oh, you could badger me on this. I'd love to write a talk. I'd love to do some more work on the church in Antioch in Acts. Um, so let me read a bit to you. Antioch um, was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. As far as we can tell, it was full of Syrians, Romans, Greeks, um, Arabs, Persians, Armenians, Parthians and Cappadocians. Um, and if you remember in Antioch, if you remember in Acts, and Antioch was the first place that Christians are called Christians, Christ ones. And people have different thoughts as to why that is, why there, what is it there that means that they're kind of given a new label basically um, and so let me just read to you this uh, I haven't got where this quote is from, sorry it, it's on, it's on uh, polupoikilos.org if you want to look it up um, p-o-l-u-p-o-i-k i-l-o-s dot o-r-g um, I don't expect you to uh, you've got it at the top of our sheet is it? Mm. excellent, there it is, great so if you bung a dot org on the end and that will give you a um, lots of quotes and thoughts and ideas in there. Uh, the citizens of Antioch could find no serviceable term to refer to them, either within Judaism or in any other Gentile religious tradition. It was a new thing and required a new name, but one which identified it with its primary focus, the Lord Jesus Christ. And with its most obvious feature, its welcoming of every race and every type, hence Christ ones, Christians. It is too much to claim that we truly justify our right to name Christian only when we practice diversity in unity. Or is it too much to claim that we truly justify our right to the name Christian only when we practice diversity in unity under Christ? So he's saying um, that these people were called Christians because they were like Jesus and that they, they, tr- they sought to reach all kinds of people rather than just people like them. Um, we can talk about that later. Um, the other interesting thing for me, particularly, is the diverse leadership thing. So the Antioch congregation selected a diverse leadership team in the early stages of their formation. Both Paul and Barnabas were Jews raised outside Palestine and immersed in Greek culture, yet they were fluent in the traditions of Jerusalem. Saul spent his school years in Jerusalem under the watchful eye of the noted teacher Gamaliel. Both were bilingual, speaking Aramaic and Greek. Manaean grew up in the household of Herod Antipas as a stepbrother. Lucius of Cyrene came from North Africa, possibly one of the people who initially preached in Antioch. Simeon, called Niger. Black was the most likely a black African. So you've got this, this extraordinary mix of people. How do you reach a diverse city in Acts? Well, one of the ways is you, you have a diverse leadership team, which is very interesting. And they could have picked anyone, I guess. They could have... Um, picked people just like them, but I, I wonder whether it's a deliberate thing that they deliberately picked diverse elders to reach a diverse city. Um, I find that quite striking. Um, the other thing, as we've already said in Romans, and I've 
struggled to find much on this, aside from stuff on the commentaries. But one of the big reasons for Paul writing Romans was, one, to ask for money. Um, two was to, and part of that was to give his extraordinary, beautiful treatise on the gospel. But some of that was, it seems because there was a, a sort of schism and um, split within the Roman church going on. And you get it particularly in 14 to 15. So um, Douglas Moo, which is one of the big, what I call fat unhappies um, on Romans, um, says this. Uh, the in, since the introduction of chapter 14 to 15, he says this. He says, this passage reveals a split in the Roman community between Jewish and Gentile Christians. Here it is, many scholars think, that we find the central concern of the letter. The treatise in chapters 1 to 11 supplies a theological basis for Paul's appeal to unity in chapters 14 to 15, while chapters 12 to 13 provide its general uh, parentic basis. Paul is writing to correct the Gentiles' indifference, even arrogance, towards the Jewish minority, at the same time that he tries to show the Jews that they must not insist on the law as a normative factor in the church. So he says, probably three issues divide these two groups. The strong eat all kinds of food, while the weak eat only vegetables, chapter 14. The strong make no distinction among days, while the weak value some days more than others. And the strong drink wine, while the weak abstain. So you see, you've got these two big kind of cultural issues, or these three cultural issues going on between these two big cultures. And you've got the the dominant um, Gentile culture in the church, is not thinking about how they do church in such a way as to look after the weak, as to, to look after the, the, the Jewish Christians. Um, if we take that as a principle then, then perhaps that means we need to think about how we do church as the, and we're all white here, as the kind of um, dominant culture, how do we do church in such a way as to love and bless the, the, the weaker group, if you like? I think one good example this morning was Andy asking Helen to read in French. Um, my, I don't know about you, my, my French is poor. Um, but it, it's good for folk who aren't English-speaking to sit there and think, actually, I'm valued here. Um, and we can read it in our Bibles, it's fine. But actually to show something of the diversity and something of our, our desire to, to be inclusive and accessible for folk. English isn't the first language, I think it's a really positive thing. Um, that's how the Bible does it. And then we'll think about briefly how other... Churches do it. Um, again, really interesting stuff. Oh, I think I've got, have I got four things on yours? Yeah. I have. Mm-hmm. One is to make a decision that people want to, um, which I think is really interesting. Um, well, well, uh, as, oh, 30 minutes. I can talk, can't I? Sorry about that. It feel like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Just trying to be kind of, you know, culturally diverse. I'm going to speak for three hours if that's good for you. Um, One of the interesting findings for me on my month or so of study was most of you guys will have heard of a guy called John Piper, um, who is now not the pastor of Bethlehem Baptist over in America, um, but he was. Uh, and there's an incredibly diverse community, I didn't realise this, but incredibly diverse community where they are. Is it Minneapolis? Mm. Um, and so one of the key things that they've done at the very heart of the church under his leadership, probably 20 years ago this was, um, is to be the kind of church that displays something of the racial harmony um, that, that the gospel brings about. 
So let me just... Um, you can look this up online, uh, but they have a number of vision and values um, as, a, as, a, as a church. And one of them is, this number six, is racial harmony. Let me read this to you. Um, number six, from racial harmony. Making intentional efforts to display love across racial and cultural lines and being a church that models the fruit of that love. In light of this value, we aim to, one, be diligent to preserve the profound unity we have in the Gospel of Christ as fellow children of God and partakers of the Holy Spirit. Number two, here's Piper, obviously. Increase our enjoyment of God through Godward friendships that celebrate and respect our ethnic and cultural distinctiveness. Number three, count our identity in Christ as more significant than every other self-defining characteristic. Number four, be relentless in calling for personal and corporate actions which express racial and ethnic harmony visibly in our church. Number five, intentionally enfold, disciple and appoint qualified leaders from diverse cultures and ethnic backgrounds into the full community life of the church, including all levels of leadership and visibility. Number six, make personal and corporate evangelism efforts to call people of all ethnicities and cultures to see and save the Saviour Jesus Christ together with us, or Piper. And number seven, grow in reflecting the racial and ethnic diversity of the global church and the neighbourhoods surrounding each of our church campuses. I'd say that was a, a real excitement to me to hear um, the kind of thing you don't normally hear from kind of Piper and Bethlehem Baptist, that actually at the core of who they are, they are see, they thought about these things, particularly um, John Piper, and thinking about how does the gospel affect how we relate to the neighbourhoods around us. Yes. Um, you've got a good example about what they actually practically did. I did, and I will come to that in a second. And one thing in particular they do is the way they, they do... Um, this, now, I, I don't know whether this still happens, but their style of their worship, by worship I mean, I don't just mean Romans 12 worship, but I mean the way they do Sunday services. Um, so again, a... Um, this is a, I would say, uh, a book I read, n- n- not a friend of Piper, if you like, um, not an enemy, but not somebody who had come from quite within the framework, but he visited um, Bethlehem Baptist um, on a Sunday and said this. He said, what was interesting to me was not the mix of colour in the congregation, but the variety in worship styles. On some Sundays, worship was a combination of hymns and praise music. Other Sundays, it was a combination of African-style music and hymns. The worship style was constantly in flux, yet the non-negotiable factor of genuine heartfelt worship of God was present each Sunday. So, now, they're a much bigger church than we would be. But they have deliberately changed their style of music, Sunday by Sunday, um, almost to the extent that nobody is satisfied. But everybody is looking to serve everybody else. Um, so, you know, could we at Magdalen Road start a, a gospel choir, for example, or whatever it might be, or, or or what about a Sunday where we have hip-hop as a worship style, or, or whatever? <laughs> Genuinely thinking, culturally, how do we worship God in such a way as to look after the minority cultures among us? To, to not just look after them, but actually to... To, to point people to them and to be excited about them. Um, I think another way, actually, at Modern Road, we're, we're, 
we're not as bad as we might be and this is the way we, we celebrate food together um, particularly the way Elizabeth will try and mix up styles of food on um, the Sundays when we have church lunch I'm deliberately seeking to celebrate different cultures and, and different people and different backgrounds and ethnicities uh, so number one is society. Number two, I think, is worship. Yeah. Good. Number three is friendship. Um, again, if you want to look at a, an example of a way that this has worked quite well, there's a church called the Mosaic Church in Arkansas, um, and there's a sort of movement sprung out of this church now. I think they, um, the pastor, and I'm never quite sure how to say his name, Mark Dimas, D-E, big Y M-A-Z. Um, I think is linking in with a seminary called Gordon Conwell Seminary, taking some um, some classes there or teaching um, there on how to think through cultivating diverse church. Uh, but one of the key things he talked about was the need to develop um, cross-cultural friendships. So it's all very well and good to say, yeah, we'd love to be more diverse as a church and that kind of thing. But you know, who, who do you rub shoulders with week by week? Um, who are you friends with? Who do you hang with? Who who do you socialise with and spend time with? Um, whether they be colleagues or neighbours or whatever it might be. But actually just thinking through at the grassroots level how we how we very easily like to just stick up stick with people who are like us. But that, that if we if we if genuinely this is something we're we're interested in or churches are interested in, then it must begin um for us in our week by week, day by day friendships, the kind of people that we're prepared to um, spend time with and, and talk to. Can I give an illustration of that? Yeah. Um, a few years ago, I had lunch in the in the World Bank in Washington D.C., which is an amazing, huge area in the basement of the building with lots of different eating points where you can get food or every kind of style of food you like. People from every nation in the world work there. And in their departments, they're all mixed in together. Lunchtime, every table, hundreds of them in the basement, in this basement dining room, is monocultural. <laughs> people choose in their free time only to hang out with people like them. Yeah. No cross-cultural friendships. Interesting. That's weird, eh? That's normal. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid. Yeah, but the, I, that's where the manifold wisdom of God, yeah. the church, should be different. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the fourth one, ah, oh, there you go. I've, I've been as marginalised. Um, I think one of the the big things for me from my time in the US, and this was a really exciting thing for me actually, was this very big church of seven to ten thousand um, on a weekend, seeking to, and the Lord seemingly have opened up opportunities for them to um, serve in different communities locally. So, I, I, I think that they, that they did studies to show that everybody who comes pretty much is within a 20-minute commute. So it is a, I call it a donut church in one sense, in that people drive to get to you, they've got an enormous parking lot, all this kind of thing. Um, but one of the things they wanted to do is, is to locally um, serve, essentially serve the local community. Um, and they, they've established these things um, called James Places. Uh, there were two reasons why it's called a James Place. One was from James in the Bible and faith without works being dead, so practical. The other I can't remember. 
I think there was something <laughs> called James. Although the initial building was, the James building was something like that. Um, I'm sure you can look it up online and it will tell you. Um, but what, what they're finding, and they just started off with one. Um, in that, so let me just read you. There's three and there's a fourth one just started as well. Uh, James Place, Walkershaw. Located in the heart of downtown Walkershaw, James Place, Walkershaw offers supportive listening, help finding community resources, health services, resume, CV and job search support, counselling, prayer, Bible studies and educational classes, immigration counselling services to help immigrants comply with the law. Um, and essentially it was an entrepreneur from the church who said, look, um, I own this building in Walkershaw, the tenants are about to move out, uh, would the church like to use it? And they said, yes, we're not sure what for yet, but yes, give us, give us first refusal. Um, and so they began to, and, and of course they're a big church, and so they have resources in terms of people with skills and gifts, and they have resources financially as well, and they can, it's all funded from the church. Um, and they thought, well, what are the needs of Walkershaw? How can we serve? And they saw, for example, a, um, a, a huge immigrant population, people looking for um, uh, lawyers, essentially, expensive lawyers to help them sort out their immigration services. And so what they did is they, the church paid for someone to go and get the training they needed mm-hmm. to be able to help folk fill out their forms and, and work through the sort of government legislation needed for them to um, be allowed to stay. And now they, I think, all accept... When I was there in October anyway, and they'd been going for two or three years, there was one person who had been rejected and everybody else had come through, such that the local mayor of Walkershaw um, told his brother-in-law who was marrying the mayor's wife, but he was from a different country, to say, go here, they will sort it for you. I trust them, they're good. And so they're getting a reputation, and they're, they're, the other stuff they have, they have, um, they've got a, they had a health services thing, so a, a community nurse from within the church, the hospital actually paid for her, but placed her in this place, so she could go and do blood pressure and that kind of stuff. Um, but with that, they then take the gospel with them. And because it's funded by the church, they have no issues or there's no difficulty in sharing Christ. So they help in practical ways, but they also help in, in spiritual ways too. So they can start Bible studies. People aren't pressured into doing stuff. People aren't pressured into praying or any of this. But because they see Christians loving them and caring for them and helping them, then, then there are folk coming through and, and becoming Christians. And then the, the other really encouraging thing for me is when folk were becoming Christians, they weren't then sucked into Elmbrook but there were local churches in Walkershaw who, who, who were kind of in partnership with the bigger church and these folk were going to those local churches too so it's just a really encouraging and exciting way and then there's, so there's one in Sherman Park so that was the Walkershaw one Sherman Park is a um, Washington High School in Milwaukee uh, and they are again helping with CVs they're helping with counselling helping with homework all that kind of stuff that was really positive too um, James Place, 30th Street, um, was a third one. And again, folk who... Opportunities and places to live, basically. So there were cheap rental places where you had folk with different needs who were able to um, uh, be in a community and sort of out of the community in a way. So just a, a, a place where you could work through various issues and problems. And then the fourth one as well, um, which is I've just seen on Facebook this last week, I think, for the uh, Barack Obama School of Career and Technical Education. Um, God has opened the door there, where I think the school has approached them to say, would you, we'll give you some space, 
would you come in and do what you're doing in Washington High School in this high school um, and serve? And, and of course, where you've got diverse schools, if you're a Christian going into those diverse schools to do stuff, then you can reach all kinds of people. It's extraordinary. So um, it just strikes me that, that one way to practically serve the needs of a community is, is a way to reach the mar- marginalised and so to sort of diversify the way you're doing church. Um, I mean, it's something for us at Modern Road, or for me, is that Comfort Trust is, is seeking to do something very similar and you know, has a trajectory in that direction. And hey, thumbs up to Hannah and, and the team, which is exciting. So um, those kinds of things are beginning to happen or have been happening for a while. We're just kind of thinking through how we... I guess the next step then is to... Um, how do we yeah, build those connections and those friendships in such a way that we can bring people in and how do we do church in such a way that will be open, welcoming and open. Mm.